Hello, hello, John Meadows here. And tonight we're with myself, Alex, James, and Bill. And if you're a film photographer, something you're very familiar with, we've all been there, people find out you're a film shooter and you get the call. Hi, I found a box or a bag or a shelf of, insert relative names here, of old camera gear that I thought you might like. And so the anticipation begins, a Roloflex, some nice Nikon gear, Hasselblad, how about a Leica M6 and or a Noctilux 50 millimeter F1 lens. But then reality hits and you find yourself thanking the person for an Instamatic X15 126 camera or a Kodak disc camera. Now, over the years, I've received a lot of stuff like this and including four lenses that uh, we're going to talk about today. These are lenses that I got. I said, thank you very much and put the boat anchors on the designated boat anchor shelf. Never use them. So today we put them to the test. Alex, James, Bill, and myself are tripping the crap fantastic. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. And we're back. So four amazing photographers, four not so amazing lenses. So how to split them up. It was all by random draw. We rolled the dice on who would try each lens and we're gonna go through them one by one. James, we'll start off with you. Tell us the lens you drew and your experience with it. All right. Well, thanks very much, John, and thanks for that craptacular introduction. And for my for my piece of crap, craptacular optics, crapped optics. I think I actually got the long straw. Actually, I think on this one, um, I got the uh, Hanamar Automatic One Thirty Five uh, Two Point Eight. Obviously, a One Thirty Five uh, Prime lens with a 2.8 aperture. So it goes from 2.8 to F22. Um, interesting lens in that it has an automatic and manual uh, switch. And uh, don't let that fool you. The automatic only means it, does, um, it doesn't stop down meter. So uh, basically it doesn't darken your viewfinder when you're closing up the aperture. Um, I, guess, I guess really depending on the camera that you're using, if you're, if you're using a camera that doesn't have uh, uh, a little aperture uh, lever inside to, uh, to trigger the aperture, then you know you're going to kind of be stuck in uh, in manual mode, and it'll be stopped down. It'll be a little bit dark. Fortunately, I shot this on my Spotmatic um, SP. All of the lenses, I'm not sure if John mentioned it. All the lenses, I think we um, that were in the pool of crap were all M42, I believe. Is that right, John? Yes, they're all M42. Yeah. So great lens, um, you know, in terms of. Um, of a $50 lens, uh, and that's kind of the going rate, anywhere from 25 to 50 bucks for this piece of glass. I shot it on a fairly sunny day. Uh, I shot a roll of um, a double X with it, uh, and I was actually fairly pleased with the results. I had a couple complications in my development. I, um, I did a one-to-one -one, um, um, dilution with my uh, uh, D96, and I probably should have just stuck with stock to get a little bit more contrast. So my negatives were a little bit thin. But in terms of the images themselves, actually, you know, not too bad if you're going to shoot it at f4 or higher. Um, uh, actually, let me rephrase that. If you're going to shoot it at f5, 6 or higher, 
you're going to get some pretty decent results from, uh, you know, F2.8 uh, to F4. Well, eh, yeah, don't bother. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's just a waste of film and chemicals at that point. It's pretty soft. Uh, you know, the bokeh is not, not spectacular, but, you know, stop down in the, in the middle range of the aperture. There was very little distortion, reasonably good sharpness. Um, I would like to say the contrast was good. I can't say for certain because I kind of messed up the development a little bit. So I don't really have a proper control sample, but I will probably shoot another roll and, uh, you know, shoot that in, in some more ideal light conditions, shoot it at box and stick with a, with a known um, development recipe. So I can compare it to, to what I had, but you know what? I did some research on this thing. You know, it's a piece of crap, but I mean, if you're looking for some fun for 25 bucks, eh, you know, I mean, you could drive to the casino when things get back to normal up here in Canada and, you know, throw a bunch of quarters down a slot machine and have less fun than shooting this thing, I think. So, um, you know, not not that bad um, of a performer in that price range. If you're looking for something to uh, uh, to put on an M42 body, hey and you don't want to blow your brains out and you need something in the 135 millimeter range, not a bad portrait shooter. Um, if you're going to shoot between uh, five, six and 11, you know, someone there'd be certainly nice if it was reasonably sharp at that two eight, you'd get some, some decent bokeh out of it. The out of, out of focus blur was, um, was okay. Like nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, it's a six bladed aperture. So you're going to get, you're not going to get that nice smooth out of focus blur that you're going to get in some higher price lenses. But I mean, yeah, I liked it. What can I say for 25 bucks? If you keep it in context, you know, you're not blowing your brains out. You know, you're not blowing your wallet out. And uh, it's a decent, decent performer. You know, it's got that kind of big glass feel, got that big, wide element in the front like there's not too much of a barrel so um you can tell that it's fast uh in terms of uh um the qualities cheap reasonably sharp at the medium uh, apertures and uh you know what go for it if you have one of these and say a helios 42 on an m42 kit eh, that's not a bad little kit to be quite honest with you so I would uh, I would go for it, you know, and um, actually I, I have read on the forums too that a lot of the guys that are using older classic lenses on digital bodies actually have commented that the chromatic aberrations on this lens are, are actually controlled quite well, which is surprising. I honestly can't tell if the lens is coded or not. I can, I, it looks like it's coded when you kind of put it in the light and, you know, see that little sort of different um, colorization that you get from the coating, but hey, not bad. I think I drew the, the, the long straw on, on the draw here. So. so I'd say this. So the verdict is it's crap, but it's not flushable. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So over to Alex. Uh, so I ended up getting a Sun Auto Zoom 85 to 210 millimeter F4.8, which in itself is a weird wide open aperture. And I say weird wide open aperture because I ended up having to shoot this wide open. I had no choice whatsoever. There's no actual switch to allow me to manually stop this lens down. And my only M42 body is a Zenit E. So there's no mechanical linkage between the camera and the aperture to stop it down. So <clears throat> weight wise, it's actually not bad. It's 
it's not really that front heavy, especially on the Zenit, which in itself is a boat anchor. And um, it actually gives a nice zoom. Even at 85 millimeters, it's actually a decent portrait lens. I really like the 85 lengths. You also have stops for 105, 135, 180, and all the way to 210. And I shot it between all of them walking through downtown Oakville. Again, like I said, I ended up shooting this wide open the whole time. And what I ended up doing was using my Ravini Labs meter. And I basically just set it to f5.6 and had to overexpose the film RPX um, 100, a stop to 50, just so that I could actually use it because I was topping out at 1 500th of a second the whole time. It was a bright sunny day it surprised me i was expecting low contrast i was expecting tons of fall off on the corners but it didn't it it actually produced good sharp images even wide open at f4.8 i used um fa1027 to develop the film so a good compensating developer um to sort of make up for the difference in what I, the aperture I was metering for and the aperture I was shooting at. And it gave a really good out of focus um, elements, really good um, bokeh, almost, almost swirly. It's almost gives you that Helios effect, which actually a lot of lenses have a lot more than I, than I ever thought. What's interesting is that it is Japanese optics. So nothing to sneeze at. And these lenses run for about $36 on eBay and actually come highly recommended. The only real information I could find on it was on the uh, Pentax forum. And as a portrait zoom lens, they are highly sought after by those using um, the uh, Spotmatic. And a lot of people um, actually adapt them to the K-mount. So I would want to shoot it again and put it on something like a Spotmatic that I can that will actually allow me to stop down the lens. But other than that, no, this is, this is a good lens. If you want something cheap and cheerful for your, um, for your Spotmatic, but you definitely want a camera that has that auto aperture. So the verdict is crap, but not flushable. Bingo. <laughs> okay. Well, so far, so far that, uh, that, uh, toilet handle is uh, getting cobwebs, so maybe it'll change with Bill. Bill, what did you get? Keep that. Oh. Keep that <laughs> okay. Hi, everyone. It's Bill Smith. How you doing? And today I got this lovely, delightful late 60s, early 70s boat anchor of a telephoto zoom lens known as the Polaris Auto Zoom F3.5 85 to 205 millimeters. So a pretty standard zoom telephoto lens, an M42 mount. It came with a tripod collar, which is nice because there's a lot of heft to this lens. Now, a little bit of history. It's like the cusp of the 1970s, zoom lenses started becoming, becoming the thing because it's like, hey, I can bundle a bunch of you know, telephoto lenses into one sort of package and it'll cover everything, especially if I go traveling. Well. If you're logging something like this, it's pretty heavy. Now, finding re uh, information on the Polaris was pretty tricky because it's like, uh, and again, as Alex mentioned, uh, 
oddly enough, the place to look for, if you're looking for third-party tests on third-party lenses of a certain vintage, go to Pentax forums. They have to be the most detailed group of people when it comes to their glass. And they're not afraid of holding back their opinions. Uh, so the consensus around their campfire is it was probably made either by uh, Sigma or Sun Optical. Now, a slightly different focal length, which is like the 70 to 230 f4.5, and also made but marketed by Polaris, was also sold by Yashica un, under their mount. And you sort of wonder, you know, were they making for some uh, OEM manufacturers as well? Well, we don't know. Anyway, if you're looking for one on Evil Bay, yeah, they're about 10 bucks plus $55 in shipping. Yeah, so it's sort of like the classic third-party zoom lens you find in the back page of a photography magazine in the early 1970s. They don't have much of a budget for, you know, marketing. So, of course, there's the girl in the bikini, you know, hey, pretty lens, pretty girl. So, in the end, it's sort of, then it really comes down to what it's like to use. Like a lot of telephoto zooms from that period of time, it's heavy. It's well-constructed. It's well-dampened. It is known as a two-touch zoom so you've got one ring that covers your focal lengths from 85 to 205 and then of course you've got your second one which does your telephone you know your focusing so it, it it's all really well dampened as because the construction is first rate uh, now bear in mind uh when i was given this lens by john from the craptastic lens collection uh it did not come with a filter or a a lens hood. I generally put a UV filter on my lens or a skylight and use a lens hood, particularly the lenses of this vintage because of, well, you know, you are dealing with the best of late 60s, early 70s lens coatings. And we're talking a third-party lens manufacturer, so they may not have the same budget the OEM guys had with their lens coatings, like the Minolta's, Canons, Nikon's of this world. So what's it like to shoot? Well, um, I got interesting results. Now, again, this thing was also, maybe it's this lens, maybe there's something in it, but I did get some ghosting and flaring on a few shots. It's not bad, it's not great. It's, it's like one of those, yeah, it's what you get in that musty camera bag along with the Argus M42, especially as they get, you know, some family friends, hey, Phil, I got some cameras, would you like them? Okay, sure, thinking again, like John said, it could be an icon. It could even be a decent Minolta. Nope, it's an Argus M42 and some weird third-party lens, in this case, the Polaris. So it's not bad. It's not great. It's middle of the road. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, to be honest, as someone who, who should, and I used it on a Pentax Spotmatic SP. I used a handheld light meter a Sakonic L398A, and I was shooting with Rolly RPX 400 process and HC110 dilution B. I was rating it at 320. So it was reasonably fast so I can shoot stop down in relatively higher speeds because it's a big, happy lens. So if you're, if you're looking to do a photo project and you're trying to mimic the classic early 1970s family photo aesthetic on a trip. Sure, if a Polaris crosses your path, why not? Um, personally, I would probably spend a few more bucks and get either a Kiron or a Vivitar made by Kiron 
or if you're really feeling generous, get a Vivitar Series 1 uh, made by Kiron. Those lenses uh, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with even the factory-made zooms, even at the late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, it, it sort of comes down to what kind of money, you know, do you want to splurge on something that's a little, I don't know, uh, dodgy, or do you want to, like, save your money and get something that will be a true workhorse that won't give you sort of hit and miss results. Yeah, I'd probably, like I said, if it's a freebie, sure, why not? But if you're paying money, yeah, I'd flush it. <laughs> so the flush handle has been used once. And it actually flushed. flushed okay. <laughs> And so uh, I'm going to finish off and the lens that I drew. And even though I, you have to believe me, I did not, the, the fix was not in. This was all completely random on four pieces of paper. And I drew a, uh, another 135 millimeter lens. I drew the uh, Practica 135 F2.8. And boy, like when you look at the history of this lens, it's based on what I could find online. It's like peeling the layers back on an onion. Apparently, from what I read, and there's not a whole lot of information on this lens, uh, it's a Korean-made copy by probably by Samyang, you know, the guys who tend to make these days make a lot of eight millimeter fisheye lenses. Um, it's a copy of the German Democratic-made Practicar 135 f 2.8, which it's in turn was a remounted version of the Pentacon 135, made by a company called Mayer, but with six blades instead of 15. Apparently, the 15 blade version of this is like, you know, is like Boca City. Mm, um, wow. And, and, and not that expensive. Like the 15 blade ones, you, you can pick them up for 100, 150 bucks on, on Evil Bay. But this one is just the, uh, the six bladed. And now the, the optical formula is a formula called Arrestor which in turn was inspired by the sonar formula. So, oh, okay. so this hmm. lens is just, uh, you know, you keep pulling back, pulling back. It's like a copy of a copy of it. It's like the Clone Wars in cheap, in cheap lenses. <laughs> How many dubbed VHS copies are we looking at here? A exactly. That's How much the... ghosting? And I'm not talking the length ghosting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the metaphor that was coming to, you know, like, you know, a four-generation audio tape. So the question is, what's the hiss like? <laughs> Um, I will say it's well constructed. Uh, the focusing is smooth. It's a bit on the heavy side. It's not. A, it's not like a a really nice uh, uh, Tukumar lens, you know, where you can you know almost focus with one finger. But it doesn't feel cheap. And it's interesting that I think for all four of us, the optically perhaps the lenses are a bit dodgy, but none of them felt like cheap. And I think maybe that's more of the uh, reflection of the era in which they were built. Because let's face it, today a lot of third-party lenses. They're so plasticky. They're like really, really poorly made. Like this one felt uh, felt solid. But now as to shooting a lens, uh, meh is my answer. It's, it has sort of what I call an old school look. You know, nothing, nothing exceptional. And like Bill, you mentioned the 1970s, and that's the exact vibe I got. Like this is the kind of lens someone would use to shoot the football team games for the, the high mm. school yearbook. Yeah, And so if you pair this lens with uh, a traditional 
grain film. Like I shot it on uh, Ultrafine Extreme 400 and developed it in like a heavily expired pouch of D76. So not particularly fine grained. It had, it had that really authentic 1970s vibe mm. to it. So if you're shooting, you know, a 70s inspired or 60s, or even so let's say a documentary style portrait session, I think the lens would be really good for it because yes, you know, these days people say, well, there are filters to do all that. I think it's more fun to get that kind of look and that effect using the real deal. Mm. Um, and so like, I'm not huge on 135 millimeter format focal length anymore, uh, but I want to give this lens another try. Perhaps I want to maybe try a contrast film because the contrast is not super, like I really had to crank up the, the, uh, the contrast. Of course, it wasn't a sunny day when I was shooting it. Right. So, so mm. I, I want to try it. Like I might try it with a roll of Raleigh uh, Retro ADS or really contrasty film like that and see what I get. Yep. Uh, and so I have to say that, um, you know, this lens, yes, crap. My hand was reaching towards the handle, but then I said, no, no, one more movement and then make final judgment. So the book is still out. But I think what's interesting now, if we sort of go to the, the group comparison, um, none of these lenses were absolute dogs. Mm. So no. I, I think, and, and I think the message is that if you get, if you're given or get the opportunity to get a lens like this for free or next to nothing, it might be worth a shot and you can get a really interesting, distinctive look because uh, who needs perfection all the time? No. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I kind of liken it. Do you want to be the backing band for Taylor Swift or do you want to be the hives? Works for me. Mm -hmm. And now, as uh, Monty Python would say, for something completely different, one shelf down from where we keep our crappy cameras we all have our photography books. And so in this segment, we're all going to choose our favorite photography book. We'll tell you what it is, and we'll tell you why it has a treasured place on our shelf. So we're going to start off with Bill this time. Thank you, John. Treasured photography book. And I, I serve, um, everyone knows Ansel Adams. And if you're a landscape photographer, everyone's going to cite him as the big influence just as young people now are citing Vivian Meyer as their influence for street photography. I, I shoot a lot of landscape and yes, I love Ansel Adams. I appreciate Ansel Adams, but the one book that has informed and influenced my work over the years is a collection of photos called Magnum Landscape published by Faden, 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 F-A-A-I-D-O-N, press uh in 1996 i don't know exactly when i picked this book up but i want to say the late 1990s at nicholas hair books on front street in toronto uh sadly the bookstore is no more uh it then became ben mcnally books they've moved around a bit so they're around but uh as a book it's a collection of landscapes done by magnum a photo agency photographers everyone from Henri cartier brassat eve arnold the greats and it's their take on landscape photography. And it's how they look at the landscape, both rural and urban, and whether or not people are a part of the mix or not. And there are some landscape photos that Brassant took that have no people in it. And they're stunning work. And he just shot them on his Leica. And 
as a book, it's like one of those, it, it, the photos are both in color and black and white. They're shot around the world. They've got everything, you know, it's from Europe, North America, Asia, and it informs, you know, it, it's one of those sort of uh, books that sadly it's not currently in print. So you're going to have to do a little digging for it, but it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg either. Cause I've did some, you know, a quick search on evil uh, online and you're looking at about maybe 10, maybe 20 bucks on the outside delivered to your door. Some photo books out there uh, will cost you a small fortune because only so many were printed. They're long out of print and they're a collector's item. So uh, Magnum Landscape, uh, it goes, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's, uh, and it's funny how I, I, I sort of revisited it recently when we, we started talking about favorite photo book. And it's like, I, I was again amazed at just how much this book has informed my work over the years. And it's just like, oh, I got to revisit this yet more often. Sounds like a winner. Oh, it is. And so uh, we're off to Alex now. So I have a lot of photo books. I have a lot of photo books related to gear. Um, I have camera and 500 cameras um, produced by um, Eastman House. Those would be the early, easy choices. I went with something a little different. Canada, as you know, has a very messy history with our Indigenous population. And in 1885, in response to a rebellion by uh, Métis leader Louis Riel, we deployed an armed force against them. One of the officers in command of an artillery unit, Captain James Peter, went along. He also captured the world's first combat photos. Now, war photographers had been a thing since the Crimean War, and there were also war photographers in the American Civil War, but these these gentlemen always shot after the fact, after the shooting was done. Captain Peters took a glass plate camera into combat with him. Places like Fish Creek and um, Batosh, and they're captured in this book. It's called um, Circumstances Alter Photographs, and it includes copies of the contact prints from Captain Peters' original glass plates, along with his actual reports. He sent in several reports to uh, prominent newspapers. And it's just, it's just a really cool thing to see that not only the combat photos, but also his reports from the time. He captured one of the last photos of Louis Rial. He captured images of the indigenous combatants and of the Canadian militia that fought during the engagement. Unfortunately, these are some of the only prints made because he, again, he would pack up the glass plates and send them back on the Canadian Pacific Railroad to an associate in Quebec City who would quickly make contact prints from the plates. And when Peters retired from the um, Royal Canadian Artillery in 1906 as a colonel, he destroyed all his plates. So all that's left are whatever contact prints are there. So it's interesting from a modern perspective to not only see some of the world's first combat photos, but also read his reports and his views of the Indigenous people at the time. 
you can still buy this new. It's available on Amazon. It will cost you about 36 bucks and change, but you can also get it for about 20 bucks used. Definitely worth it if you're interested in history, interested in combat photography and uh, Canadian history. I'm definitely going to track that uh, book down. I'm glad it's still available. I, I had no idea that the first actual combat photography was done in Canada. Yeah. That's a big surprise. Yeah. I'm, I'm so. amazed that the Colonel like destroyed his glass plates as he sort of like, well, trying to erase history in some regards. It might be sort of reconciling what he did. I mean, we weren't Louis Riel in himself is a, uh, is a uh, controversial figure and his mm. death um, by hanging um, by uh, the Canadian prime minister insisting on it, Sir John A. Macdonald. So there we go. One of the last photos of uh, Riel right there. Oh, wow. Glass plate in combat. Wow. Now, okay. this, have been a, this have been a dry plate? Yeah. So um, the dry plate process was really perfected by 1882 which allowed him to take the photographic medium with him without needing to bring the developing equipment, which is what really took, um, took out the combat aspect of the uh, photography done during uh, Crimea and the American Civil War. And even with Crimea, a lot of those photos, those early photos were completely staged mm -hmm. by the photographer. They actually moved cannonball and shot into place to take pictures and you just couldn't bring the equipment into combat yeah. during the horrendous nature of uh, even the American Civil War. Nope. Mm. So, James, what do you have for us? Well, I'm going to, uh, you know, take a bit more of a practical approach, I guess, in terms of the book. Um, as uh, some of you know, I used to uh, teach photography um, at Sheridan College in the commercial photography program, but gosh, Actually, 20 years ago, good God, in 2001, I used to teach photography. And this book here, this is Photography, the second edition, very, very uh, fitting title, Photography um, by Bruce Warren. Um, it is a textbook. Um, and why is this one of my favorite textbooks? Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a, a, a crotchety stickler when it comes to photography technique and really wanting that to be accurate especially you know when we're, we're we're teaching people that are new to film photography or new to photography in general I think it's really incumbent upon people with a little bit more experience to share what at least uh, from a textual or textbook standpoint is the correct way of doing things not just the way that it's worked for you but at least that gives them a good foundation so this book really I mean look it's a classic reference on how to do anything and everything in photography and to apply it to your own work, whether or not it's color, black and white. Um, it's an, it's got an in-depth chapter on almost every single aspect of photography, whether or not you're doing it on a commercial basis or you're an intermediate, whether or not you're a student of photography and at that, you know, basic and intermediate or even advanced levels, whether or not you're a professional or an aspiring professional. This has so much information in it. And, and I'm not just talking like boring stuff, like it's got history of photography in there, history of different cameras, you know, what went into them, development techniques, um, 
you know, this book was uh, the second edition was was printed in 2001. So it's pretty light on the digital aspect of photography, just given uh, the time frame. But in terms of, you know, classic lighting and portraiture and all of those techniques, all of the foundational things that you would apply in photography. And like if you if you take a look at some of this stuff, like it's got like every single type of technique that you could ever have. So, you know, if you want to get into you know, um, medium format, you want to, you know, you want to shoot a miniature format, 35 millimeter, or even sub miniature, you want to shoot large format and all the different, you know, all the way up to, uh, you know, 16 by 20 negatives or whatever, all of that stuff uh, is in here. And it is a great point of reference, you know, often, you know, one of the things that frustrates me, I read a lot of, uh, you know, we have, you know, for, Gosh, for, you know, for every human being on the planet, there are two um, Facebook photography groups for film photography where, you know, you don't have to do any research. You can go ahead and ask people, I'm getting into medium format photography. What do you recommend? One of that is one of the, you know, my pet peeve questions, because it's like, well, that's not really a question. I know who cares what somebody else likes, figure out what, what you like. And this book would help you do that. So you know, rather than going out there and seeking others' opinions to form your own, this is a really great book to get a great foundational knowledge, apply that to what you're thinking that you want to accomplish as a photographer. And this book will help guide you in certain, you know, aspects of, you know, what you need to learn, what type of lighting you need to learn, how, how does your camera work how does your flash unit work how do lighting setups work what is the right equipment for um, landscape photography or macro photography for product photography portrait blah 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 the whole thing it's basically um you know it's kind of a bible of of photography and that's why for me uh you know it is essentially the book to have and look at this like you even have charts you know, yes, in yes. here for all of the black and white papers. And, and, you know, because this book is 20 years old, it's not got 20 years of missing information in it from 2001 to now. It's actually got, you know, 40 years of information in it from, you know, well, actually probably closer to 60 years of information in it from the 40s all the way up to the year 2000. So if you can find one of these, it's not in print anymore, I believe. Uh, it's made by, the author is Bruce, War Bruce Warren. Um, and it is a it is a college level textbook made by Delmar or Thompson Learning. So you could perhaps find one at a college or university bookstore or Amazon or potentially eBay. Um, you know, if you're, you know, serious into the techniques of photography and want to learn more and establish a good foundation um, of knowledge, I, I recommend it. I, I, it it's it's helped me. A tremendous amount of time, especially if you encounter a problem with a negative or something like that, and you just can't, mm. you're stumped, you know, you've got somewhere to go and you can piece together the different things and kind of come up with a conclusion as to what happened. And the other things it gets you off Google. So, you know, it, it, it's so much better, I think, to, you know, digest information, read it, have something tangible in your hands. You know, it's funny. It's always, I always laugh to myself, all of these people learn about film photography using the internet and not books which seems counterintuitive to mm. being really into analog photography but hey, who am i to judge but well, you know it's, well. it's, fun, it's funny because everyone looks at instagram as a, where where do i go to get inspiration and it's like 
but then it's like everything's blended down into this one uniform look that was yeah. shot on portrait 400 <laughs> whereas then you've got books you know photo books you know going back decades and it's like uh there's tons of inspiration sitting there yeah one of the nice things is is that the um the applied photography program at sheridan still exists they still are they they've gotten back into using the dark room and shooting 35 millimeter i know when you were teaching james um was the year before i started at sheridan as a student and the applied photography program required you to have an arca smith four by five camera yeah now it's just whatever 35 millimeter slr they can get their hands on but the the uh professor there has that textbook and still uses that there you go it, it really so, is a bible so aa2 in the um oh yeah at sheridan college for vulgar you want to take a look at one of those books if you're a sheridan student you can go there there you go and uh, you know what i just want to say not only do you find inspiration uh, from the books that Bill has mentioned and that Alex has mentioned, and I'm not sure what John's got up his sleeve, but you can also find inspiration in learning new techniques, not just looking at examples of other people's work. So yeah. um, look at both aspects of that and enjoy photography. It's supposed to be fun. Mm. Okay, so speaking of inspiration, I'm going to talk about a book that I find very inspirational because it's one of my it's about one of my hero photographers and my favorites. The book is Paris Eugene Ager. And of course, uh, you can probably guess it's about the photographer Eugene Ager, who is most famous for his photographs of the uh, old medieval Paris before it was basically destroyed uh, to make way for a modern planned city, uh, you know, towards like the end of the 19th, early 20th uh, century. And, um, I want to start off with the quality of the book. The The reproductions of the photos are amazing. To me, they really capture the style, sort of the, the vibe of, uh, of Ajay's work. Of course, uh, he was famous for using equipment that was uh, out of date, air quotes, even back in the back in the day when he was uh, when he was shooting. Um, Oh, and Alex is also holding up his uh, his copy, so uh, he he's going to keep me uh, he's going to keep me honest. And like the 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 reproductions in the book capture the tonal the tonal range of the photographs amazingly. Uh, the the act the toning like the the sort of the sepia toning is is beautiful. And to, to loop back to what we were saying before, like if people are just looking at, you, you, if you look at a, a photograph, even a decent photograph that's been, uh, you know, scanned that's on a computer screen, you know, it's been crunched down by the Facebook algorithm or God knows whatever Instagram does to it. You know, you're not getting everything in that photograph. Like, of course, like the best way to see a photograph is to see an actual wet print in your hands. And after that, I think the best thing to see is, you know, a well done reproduction of uh, a photograph and this book has beautifully done reproductions i also like the way that it starts the first section of the book is uh, a number of uh, photographs like it's some of his famous architectural photographs no no titles no notes just a picture like on it for a few pages you know so you're basically 
you're invited to look at the picture with no preconceived notions, without it getting hung up on the historical details, just to sort of uh, almost like an introduction to his work. Um, and then as you go through the book, there are essays by a uh, guy named Andreas Kreis. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's K-R-A-S-E. So, Close uh, enough for English. Yeah. And uh, now the and the thing that what's interesting, of course, the book is trilingual. Like it, the uh, the essays are in uh, French, English, and I believe it's German. At, 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 at the very least, it's French and English. But hey, so it's bilingual. So hey, we're used to that in in Canada. The uh, the essay by Andreas Kress gives a really really good introduction, a very a detailed uh, overview of uh, of Ajay's life and career as a photographer, and really sort of helps set the context for someone who, you know, very interesting character, and especially early on in life, he had a lot of failures. You know school expulsions not getting into certain institutions he had a lot of a lot of failures but he originally became he eventually became uh, successful by doing work that was seen as very very important from both a historical and later on an artistic perspective for uh, for documenting a paris that no longer exists like sometimes you know we, we, we live in the toronto area and i'm not saying toronto's like medieval paris but uh We've all seen pictures of buildings that used to exist in Toronto and are now gone because someone thought that, hey, we need a glass and concrete condo in its place. University and, Avenue. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so having these pictures really, you know, does it's historical service to keep the memory of these of these alive and also his uh, there's a great section on his street vendor pictures mm. um you know do we get mm. a sense of the characters because quite often quite often his his pictures of old paris the streets are deserted like there's just beautiful architecture there's a scene but the actors haven't stepped on stage yet that's the sort of the sense i get from his work so the street vendor pictures are an interesting, uh, interesting contrast. So now I, I'm not 100% sure if this book is still available or not. Uh, I'll maybe I'll do some research and I think we, we can put some links to these books in, uh, in the show notes. If you can track this book down, like I, I find it inspirational. Uh, like I said, he is one of my favorite photographers. I'd love to be able to shoot architecture, like ur the urban landscape in a modern setting, but if I could capture it the way that he captured medieval Paris, I'd, I'd be really happy. So again, just to finish off for these books, whether it's, you know, as, as James was saying, technical information that will help you out uh, or books that, that uh, show images or about, that's about history or just have beautiful photographs in the age of the internet, you do yourself a disservice if you don't pick up a book from mm. time to time. So I guess that's the last message for this episode. So this is uh, John Meadows. I hope everyone is safe and healthy and well. We're hoping that we're getting towards the end of this thing in a couple of months. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to do in-person recordings again. But uh, be safe, be patient, be healthy and be shooting. And so the last thing I'll say is, you know, don't throw away that crap lens. 
it, it just might have a place in your arsenal. <laughs> oh, God. Ooh. Oh, boy. Oh, John. Mm. All right, I guess I'll go. Um, just further to what John said, I hope you're all safe and I hope everyone's getting their shots and believing in science. It's the right thing to do. And I hope your, your families are safe and soon um, we'll all be out there on photo walks again, acting stupid and, uh, you know, exposing film and um, sometimes ourselves. And, uh, you know, uh, the most important thing about those photo walks, of course, there's two things, coffee and then beer. And, um, you know, if the, if the craptastic lens challenge has taught us anything is, uh, hey man, you know, one man's junk may be another man's treasure. Get out there and shoot some film. <laughs> it's Bill Smith. Um, <laughs> oh boy, how to follow that. Um, again, it's like, stay safe. We're not out of the woods yet. I'm thankful I've had my first shot. Looking forward to the second one because I really can't wait for in-person photo walks to happen again. I also can't wait to go into bookstores and browse, you know, photography books and other stuff. And also, you know, uh, like James and John said, sometimes that, that, that craptastic lens might be a treasure. You don't know until you try it. And my name's Alex Lopes. If you're a film photographer, you already trust science. It's how you develop film. And if it's yellow, put it under UV light and clear off that uh, radioactive coating. If it's brown, flush it down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>